0: to our second episode of this three-part horizon scanning series from the public law team at Herbert Smith Freehills. My name is Shamim Ahmed. I'm an associate in the public law team in the London office. I'm joined by Nusut Zar, a public law partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. We are pleased to have with us today James McBride, a partner from Hanbury Strategy. Hanbury is a strategic advisory firm that provides political insights and analysis, and James leads Hanbury's work to provide that political and policy insight, advising businesses across a range of industries. Together, we are doing a series looking to the horizon and considering the political and legal landscape we can expect post-COVID and post-Brexit, as well as picking up the post-general election agenda. Today, we'll be considering how the post-Brexit world will look. Let's get straight to it. James, what do you anticipate to be the challenges post-Brexit?
1: Great, thank you. There is, of course, plenty we could talk about, but I think there are are two obvious challenges, one short-term, one long-term. If we start on the the short-term challenge, uh, when we get a deal, And at this stage, I think it is more when rather than if. I think we'll soon realise that Canada isn't very different to Australia. Um, And what I mean by that is a so-called Canada-style free trade agreement is not dissimilar to a so-called Australian-style WTO no deal. Uh, The differences are exaggerated. And I don't think people are prepared for that. Um, And that's partly because as a country, we've gone on something of a journey. Canada or Canada-style FTA, used to be seen as the worst possible deal on the table, bar only no deal. And by the way, that was seen as the worst possible deal on the table uh, by many members of the Conservative Party. It is now seen as the best possible deal. And the reason many people believed it was a bad deal, and to be fair on the flip side, the reason its long-term proponents have always thought it was a good deal, is precisely because it is a very distant relationship with the European Union. And what that means is trade friction. So come what may, trade frictions, deal or no deal, are heading our way. Um, And look, under a a deal, we are unlikely to be faced with tariffs, um, at least not immediately, Um, but notwithstanding that, as I say, significant trade frictions are heading our way, both at the border and away from the border. So that means VAT, customs, exit declarations, security declarations, SPS checks, rules of origin, mutual recognition agreements, the list goes on. Um, now the government has recently said that they delayed the implementation of some of these trade frictions. Uh, but that sort of speaks to my point. You know, four years after the EU referendum, and one year after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, as a country, we are still not ready for the additional trade frictions that are coming our way.
0: That's really interesting. So you believe that we can delay but not avoid them?
1: Absolutely, that's right.
0: And you mentioned the long-term consequences.
1: Yes, and of course, ultimately, these are going to be far more significant than the short-term consequences. And at the heart of Brexit, of course, is a tension between sovereignty on the one hand So the power to set our own policy, rules and regulations, and market access on the other. Um, And this tension will need to be resolved if both sides are to agree a deal. Um, And of course, I think a deal would be agreed. Um, And I think the broad landing zone for that deal is probably along the following lines. You know, both sides agree to part ways with a deal on the 31st of December and both sides agree to be good partners, to keep talking, um, to keep cooperating, but that where one side chooses to depart from that relationship, they can, albeit with some costs. Um, this is broadly speaking the landing zone I think we're likely to reach. Um, now, fleshing that out into an international legal text with a clear dispute resolution mechanism to operationalize that won't be easy but it ought to be possible. Um, But of course, what this means is that the relationship is fundamentally pretty unstable.
0: Can you give us an illustration of what that will look like?
1: Yeah, so I think level playing field is probably the best example. So I think both sides will agree in principle to stay close on, for example, the issue of, of state aid. But if the UK were to step out of line one day and decide, for example, to state fund or state-backed car manufacturing in the UK. This of course won't go down particularly well in France or in Germany, but under the agreement, there'll be nothing stopping the UK from doing that. But as I say, it will come at a cost. And this, in, in this example, the most obvious cost would be the imposition of tariffs on UK export of cars to the European Union. So again, as you can see, the future relationship has the potential to be pretty unstable. At any given time, the nature of that relationship will be dependent on the politics, the policy and the regulations on either side of the channel.
0: So overall, your prediction is that at best, the relationship will be in constant state of flux and at worst, the relationship is in a constant state of instability. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Um, It's a really interesting way in which to look at the future relationship. Digging into the detail a bit more, as a practice, the public law team is interested in human rights, as this is one of the tools in which public bodies are held to account. How do you think the UK's membership of the European Court of Human Rights, or the ECHR, might be impacted because of Brexit?
1: Yeah, so I think the ECHR is a a pretty good example. So you will know that certain members of the Conservative Party and indeed certain members of the Cabinet have said in the past that they want to leave the ECHR. Um, You will also know that certain members of the Conservative Party and again certain members of the Cabinet have said in the past that they want to scrap the implementing legislation of the ECHR in English law, which is of course the Human Rights Act and to replace it with a a so-called British Bill of Rights. Now, the EU, in response to this historic criticism of the ECHR in in British politics, especially in the right of British politics, has said that without continued membership of the ECHR, there can't be a security partnership with the UK. Um, And on the EU's part, it's not uncommon for human rights to be incorporated into bilateral trade agreements. Uh, by way of a essential elements human rights clause um, that enables one party to take appropriate action on the other in case of serious breaches. Um, But the EU doesn't normally insist upon ECHR membership being written into the agreement Um, and without this cooperation with the EU, uh, the UK's criminal justice and security partnership uh, could be at risk. But again, a similar landing zone to the one we just discussed for LPF, I think could be on offer here. So both sides agree to continue to uphold the principles of the ECHR, but they also agree that if either party steps out of line, that cooperation on security and policing matters could then later be withdrawn. It's the same sort of potential solution as regarding trade.
0: There seems to be a theme running through this analysis. And how might the UK's relationship with the Court of Justice of the European Union or the CJEU be impacted?
1: So the first thing to say is that whatever is agreed next, as you all know, there is still a role for the Court of Justice of the European Union, or what historically was called the ECJ, uh, because it's already written into the agreement. It's there in black and white in the withdrawal agreement. Um, in the withdrawal agreement, the ECJ has jurisdiction over concepts of EU law that arise over the implementation and application of the withdrawal agreement. For example, we can see that in citizens' rights. Uh, but it goes much further than that. And actually it covers the Northern Ireland protocol. So for as long as the protocol is in force and actually for four years after leaving the transition period, the European Commission, could bring an infringement case against the UK for breaches of EU law that took place during the transition period. Uh, So the important point is that the ECJ is already there and it's there in a pretty extensive manner. Um, The really important point therefore is to treat with caution I think some of the rhetoric coming out from number 10 that there can be no role for the ECJ in the Brexit deal, it's already there. So in terms of the future relationship, of course, it's still up in the air, um, but I think it is possible and actually probably likely that under the dispute resolution mechanism that we've discussed already, that disputes over the concepts of EU law, like in the withdrawal agreement, do go to the ECJ for an interpretation. However, I do think it's important to note that it's unlikely that the UK would agree to that ruling being binding on the UK. Um, It may be binding on the EU side, but I don't think the UK will sign up to a deal where it's binding on the UK side. It will be for the joint committee, eh, an organization where both sides are represented to ultimately flesh out some sort of compromise, potentially with the use of an independent arbitration panel.
0: Thank you for those fascinating thoughts, James. Nusrat, what are your insights on the status of the CJEU in a post-Brexit world?
2: Thanks, Shamim. I think on the more granular level, there is a question about what the status of retained EU case law will be in the courts. And retained EU case law means the principles and decisions laid down by the Court of Justice of the European Union in relation to EU law, which is retained under the 2018 Act, which were applicable on or before the end of the transition period as modified in English law. And currently only the highest courts in the UK, which are the Supreme Court or the High Court of Justiciary, which is the final criminal court of appeal in Scotland, where there's no route of appeal to the UK Supreme Court, only those two courts have jurisdiction to depart from retained EU case law. However, on 2 July, the government published a consultation document on whether to extend that power to lower UK courts and tribunals, and the government is minded to do so. It considers it desirable that courts and tribunals other than the UK Supreme Court and High Court of Justiciary should be able to depart from retained EU case law to allow for the more rapid development of retained EU law. So when would courts be able to depart from EU
0: precedent?
2: So under the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018, the UK Supreme Court and the High Court of Justiciary are required to apply the same test as they would apply in deciding whether to depart from their own case law. In deciding whether to depart from retained EU law. The UK Supreme Court test in deciding whether to depart from its own case law is whether it appears right to do so. So it's this test which the government would like to extend to the lower courts and tribunals. On the surface this does appear to be a natural step given the government's desire to allow the law to continue to, as the government puts it, evolve and reflect changing needs of the UK following our departure from the EU. But I think the utility of such an extension is questionable. I do think that this would be a very vague test to extend to a first instance court, especially given that there are no guiding principles for what divergence might look like. I think at the extreme, there are two possible outcomes. There's the possibility of real uncertainty in the law, as first-instance courts might well reach inconsistent decisions, and on the other hand, it might be the case that lower courts simply wouldn't feel confident in departing from established law. It is highly likely, I think, that litigants and their representatives would utilise such a tool to try to retest established EU principles in case law, and indeed that that would be their prerogative to do that. Indeed. Indeed. That is very interesting and
0: certainly it is a development that we should all be keeping an eye on. That brings us to the end of our time for today's podcast. Thank you all for listening and we hope that it's been helpful. For more information, feel free to be in touch and keep an eye on our public law notes blog and the firm's COVID material. This was Shameem Ahmad talking with Nusrit Zah who co-leads the Herbert Smith Freehills public law practice in London and James McBride a partner from Hanbury Strategy. Look out for our next episode on returning to the post-general election agenda. Until then, take care.